So I've got some vacation time coming up this week, and this is really the kind of vacation that I take to do almost absolutely nothing to prepare myself for the fall to come. But there's one thing that I'm doing that I'm really looking forward to. This Thursday, I am taking my beloved niece, my beloved seven-year-old niece, Margot, to New Yankee Stadium. Now, I know for some of you, I heard the groans. That's tantamount to imperiling the welfare of a child, I know, to take them to a Yankee game. And I love the way she responded to it. This was a gift for her seventh birthday when I said, Uncle Kenki's going to take you to, uh, to a game. Uncle Kenki, that's what she calls me. You cannot. She can. She was excited initially, and then she started asking a whole bunch of questions. Will you buy me a hot dog? Yes, I'll buy you a hot dog. And she really got excited. Will you buy me another hot dog? Yes, another. Will you buy me cotton candy? Yes. And then I'll gladly deliver you back home to your parents for <laughs> them to tend to your ailing stomach. Here's the thing, though. This is not just her first game at New Yankee Stadium. It's my first game at New Yankee Stadium, even though New Yankee Stadium has been around now for this will be the fourth summer. I'm not a fan of New Yankee Stadium as much as I am a fan of the New York Yankees. I mean, they're woven into my blood. I've been a fan since 1975. I lived through the 80s when it was assumed, not like it's been recently, that the Yankees wouldn't make the playoffs every year. It was not a foregone conclusion. I don't love New Yankee Stadium because of the way it's set up. They've got this thing that rings all the way from the first base side through home plate all the way to third base and going 10 rows back that they call the championship club seats. And it is completely dug out, literally with cement, from the whole rest of the stadium. It's almost as if it's separated by barbed wire and barking dogs and a moat and alligators to kind of keep people in and keep other folks out. And the problem with this is that there are so many toys and baubles and things that they give you to do when you buy these insanely expensive seats in the championship section is that people don't spend the time watching at the game. And so when you look at a game at New Yankee Stadium on television, you see all kinds of people in the stands, but no atmosphere right around the game itself. To me, it represents so many of the things that I think are you know, kind of going wrong that I'd like us to take a look at in a society where we're obsessed with extreme measures of wealth, obsessed with a status culture. I mean, and I'm going to praise the Phillies here. The Phillies and Citizens Bank Park does it right. I mean, there's always going to be expensive seats and there's always going to be cheap seats. But there's a sense when you go to a Phillies game, yes, even in this season in which I know the Phillies are not doing well. And by the way, welcome to what it's like to root for a big market team. Because when you expect to win and they don't, it really stinks. When the Phillies stands, you get the sense that everyone is in it together. That's not the case at New Yankee Stadium. The whole atmosphere is diminished. The spark isn't quite there the way it was at old Yankee Stadium, where I sat everywhere from right behind home plate to the upper, upper, upper reaches of the nosebleeds and always felt connected to everyone there and what was going on. Here's the thing. So, you know, if the Yankees happen to win the World Series this year, which I think maybe is a possibility to happen, you will probably hold this against me and say, well, you probably not going to enjoy the fact they're going to win the World Series. Well, no, I am going to win. It's uh, going to enjoy the fact they're going to win the World Series. But I recognize that the Yankees have sold some of their soul. And you might say, the Yankees ever had soul? Hmm. 
The Yankees have sold some of their soul to increase their already very sizable competitive advantage that they had almost almost every other team over it. That's what today's movie is about, or that's where the movie starts, Moneyball, which is the story of the 2002 Oakland A's and Billy Bean, their general manager, and it describes what it's like for a small market team, the exact opposite end of the New York Yankees in terms of payroll, in terms of who they can spend their money on, in terms of their players. The Oakland A's, the smallest of the small markets, what it's like for that team to be able to compete on the field with teams with many more resources. And it's a story, really a wonderful story of this team with a very small payroll that is able to do some completely unexpected and exciting things. Now, the movie condenses the book into the 2002 season, the book Moneyball by Michael Lewis. I really recommend it if you are interested, not just in baseball, but in anything having to do with innovative business practices. It, it you know, is about Spiritual community, it's about business, it's about education, it's about innovation. This is a story of David versus Goliath, of big market versus small market, and also it is a story of David versus Goliath in inherited wisdom versus new innovative ways of thinking. That's really what the story is about. The situation that Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's, finds himself in is that there are all these kinds of really suspect, subjective, not terribly wise ways that they uh, kind of evaluate, the scouts evaluate the players that are up and coming. I'll give you just two, one of which is just absurd and sexist and incredibly stupid, which is that when they're taking a look at these young players, some of the scouts would say his girlfriend is not attractive enough which means he doesn't have confidence enough that won't translate onto the field for him to really reach his potential. As I said, sexist and stupid, and also just not a real great way to evaluate someone's ability to play. They would talk almost in a way of eugenics, like, you know, not quite as awful as racist eugenics, but they would talk about a baseball player having the good face. Good face, an attractive young man. He has a good face. He should be able to play ball. And here's the thing. Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's, was one of those kids who years ago, decades ago, got a large bonus because he had a good face. He looked like he was straight out of Hollywood to play this role, big and strapping and good chin. And the scout said about him, he had a good face. Problem was, he flamed out. He was a horrible Major League Baseball player. And so Billy Bean, taking the whole system that led him to be overhyped and then ultimately become a bust, He critiqued that system from the inside. And as a GM, he was not going to be a victim of what he had been as an up-and-coming player. His big mantra in this movie is, you adapt or you die. So Billy Bean, or Brad Pitt in this case, boldly challenges his organization to think differently, to do all that they can with a realistic assessment of who they are and what they have, to think differently about the game that they have all spent many years of their lives studying and playing. He is acting for asking for adaptive change, not just moving the deck pieces around, the chairs around. He is asking to see 
things and perceive things differently. Now, I will give you one example of this, just one example, if you'll show the first number up here. 300. It's kind of inherited baseball wisdom if we know anything about baseball, right? If you're a 300 hitter, you're a good hitter. If you can do this over 15 or 20 years, you're going to be in the Hall hall of Fame, right? 300 hitter says actually very little about what kind of hitter you are. Show those next set of numbers. That is what is called a slash line. It's associated with saber. This is the baseline of starting to understand a new way of looking at baseball if you never heard before. You see the first player up there, 300 average, 350 on base percentage, 400 slugging percentage. That on base percentage, that's about how many times, not just hits you get, but walks you get. That 400, that's about slugging percentage. A single isn't quite as good as a double, isn't quite as good as a triple, isn't quite as good as a home run. Down below, you see a number there that begins, player B, 250. We tend to think a 250 hitter, if you know anything about baseball, they're not very good. However, you've got to look deeper. That 250 hitter gets on base 400% of the time and hits 550 slugging. Now, how many of you thought before coming in here today that a 300 hitter is a really good hitter? Think differently. The same lesson and the same logic applies to not just understanding baseball, but truly understanding our lives. It comes to understand how it is that we deal with innovation and how it is that we look at the inherited wisdom that we have received, not cynically, but skeptically. How is it that we look on the inherited wisdom that we receive and ask ourselves, Is this really working for us? I have to tell you, I am very drawn to this movie and to the book, Moneyball, because as someone who was the first one here, certainly now wonderfully not the only one here, but the first one here to start this congregation, I must tell you that I keep in a secret email file the variety of emails that I received from people who told me that the approach I was taking and the approach we were taking would not work. And I'm not someone who likes to draw tremendous energy from resentment. But I'm human. And in so in some, some infrequently, but some of those moments when things get challenging here is they get challenging everywhere. I like to go back and look at a few of those emails that said, basically, you guys are going to wither on the vine within a year of you starting. And we haven't. And for a new congregation, we've had remarkable, remarkable growth. So. So I like that David and Goliath story. I like those folks who have the ability to think differently. But even more than a David and Goliath story, I think of this story, Moneyball, as a Davy and Goliath story. Any children in the 70s here? Davy and Goliath? Any parents who are children in the 70s here? Davy and Goliath? We know these folks, right? Maybe. What, what's the tagline? Gee, Davy. <laughs> this was the outreach, and I have to say quite effective outreach of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America in the 1970s. It was a series of claymation morality plays about living a virtuous life with Davy and his dog, Goliath. They were always learning lessons. And there's this one 
lesson, this one episode that I really recall, it's of Davy trying to stop a child from going across the street when Davy sees that he's going to get hit by a car and he yells out, stop. And the kid does not stop. Davy gets a little annoyed. And then another interaction happens like this, where he yells out to the kid something to get a response, and he gets no response. And finally, Davy is to the point of just fuming that this child, potentially a friend of his could be, is ignoring him. And he starts to get angry, and he starts to build up resentment. Any of you remember this episode? All right. One or two. Sorry. The cultural minutiae I carry around is sometimes really annoying. But there's a lesson here, I swear. Goliath, the dog, goes, gee, Davy, do all that with me, would you? Oh, come on. Be dorky with me. I don't want to be the only one being dorky up here. Gee, Davy. Maybe you should think differently about it. Because what Davy understands is that the kid he was yelling at, that he thought he was trying to help, is deaf. And so as he was building up anger and resentment toward this child who physically could not hear him and thought was ignoring him, that wasn't the case at all. And what the dog Goliath points out to Davy, the human boy, is that he was engaging in, they didn't use the words back then, but I think we can understand them now, he was engaging in lazy looking. His assumptions guided how he was looking at the world and he needed, like Billy Bean encourages his scouts, to look differently. Not assume all the facts are in evidence, not to see our lives by rote, and that in fact realizing the limits of our inherited perspective can be the most liberating thing that we can do for ourselves. Sometimes when we experience our limits, we can get angry at ourselves. Sometimes we can feel shame. Sometimes we can feel as if we are not good enough. But to flip that on its head. And say that sometimes when we bump up against the outer edges of what we know and really allow ourselves to experience our limits, then in fact, those are the seeds of our liberation and our awakening. In the movie, when Billy Bean takes real inventory of his inherited wisdom, of what is no longer going to work for a small market team, that they have to do what they can with what they have, he blows past the limits of his past perspective and a whole new world opens for them. The A's go on to have an amazing season with completely unexpected players. They don't just give a good faith effort. They give a good faith effort that is grounded in a realistic sense of possibility of taking inventory of who they are and what they have so they can make the changes that they want to. I have to tell you, and I think so many of us know this already, that it is not just for those of us who are in recovery that taking fearless moral inventory is an essential component of living an awakening spiritual life. And when I say fearless moral inventory, I basically mean this. Having a baseline sense of regular honesty of who we are and what we have, our defects and our assets. Heard a great example of this this past week from a New York Times piece called The Power of Negative Thinking. Very often you hear preachers and folks talk about the power of positive thinking. Well, this story took its uh, embarkation point, a jumping off point, from um, a self-help guru who was... Uh, doing a, a fire walk, a coal walk out in, uh, in California. I've known people who've done coal walks and they've survived intact. This one didn't quite turn out so well because 21 people had to be treated for burns on their feet. 
Some of them had to go to the hospital. Now, this particular self-help program that had people transcend their physical limitations through what they call positive visualization. Mind over matter. By stressing positive visualization, they could just seemingly get over the fact that they were walking across hot fire. It reminds me of a great proverb from India, which says, whether you call the cobra Mr. Cobra or Cobra, he will still bite you. (laughs) Sometimes it does not matter how positive our thoughts are. And one of the things that this article, the power of negative thinking, says is that there are all kinds of ways in which overstressing positive uh, uh, positive visualization, positive thoughts actually can be a form of brain control, mind control, that especially if we suffer from low self-esteem, telling ourselves like Stuart Smalley, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, and God done it, people like me. But actually, if at the core we still really don't believe that we're enough, that actually can make our feeling of our situation, of ourselves, worse. And so actually I don't think it's about the power of negative thinking any more than it's about the power of positive thinking. I would call it the power of let it be thinking. The power of basic awareness. Basic inventory. What's going on right now? Good, bad, indifferent. Exciting, boring, whatever it is. Learning to let it in and be with it in this moment. I mean, this is something that this article talks about. And there are real powerful studies that examine. There's one in the Journal of Pain Studies, which takes a look at people who live with chronic pain. Sometimes because they are ill or because they are struggling with with a disease that is just not going away. One of the forms of diminishing that pain is learning to let it be, not force it out, not distance ourselves from immediately, but simply to let ourselves be with it. I mean, this is studied in the Journal of Pain Studies. I don't know how many of us read the Journal of Pain Studies, but if you want to look it up, here's an opportunity to see the power of letting it be. In a deeper spiritual way, we might call this turning non-judgmentally towards our own experience, building the container of our perception that allows us to be with whatever is there. I mean, sometimes, yes, it makes sense to change it, but as the motto of Outward Bound goes, if we cannot get out of it, we ought to get into it. The mystical traditions call this the way of perceiving that is non-dual awareness. Not immediately labeling our experience as I like it or I hate it, not as ooh, this feels good or ooh, this feels bad, but to open the awareness in such a way that we shape the container, I would say not just of our perception, but of our very hearts. Sometimes what we resist and what we feed simply persists. I've done this with myself this past uh, six weeks or so. The Yankees have not been playing very well. Actually, they've won four in a row now, but I started to write this message five days ago and they were really slumping, so stick with me. When the Yankees struggle or I feel the manager makes a boneheaded move, I get angry. I'm an emotional person. I'm an overly emotional person. It's one of the reasons that meditation and yoga are very, very good for me because I'm very emotionally volatile. And sometimes when something bad happens on the field that I don't like, I will go immediately to the Yankees' blogs. And I will see and scroll through all the ways in which just how I would like to say it. They are treating the hitting coach, the manager, the player as an idiot who should be banished from the game of baseball forever. 
And what I find is that just perpetuates the negative feeling. When I experience something not so good about what's going on in the field and restrain myself from going immediately to my media, what I actually observed over these last six weeks is it goes away on its own. It's my energy that perpetuates it. That's that power of letting it be thinking, which allows us to take an honest, not self-condemning, but merely honest inventory of who we are and what we have. This ability to take honest inventory leads to the most profound efforts and aspirations to really change our lives. We need effort and we need inventory. It almost as as if when we truly engage with what is here and ask ourselves what we can do with it, we have a kind of yoga of decision making. A kind of yoga of ability to create positive change. I mean that in the sense of strength and flexibility. Strength and flexibility that allows us to see this is what is here. And also the power to perceive this is what could be. Without shorting either one. Effort without inventory can leave many of us. And it absolutely has led me in my life to this in the past. A kind of self-deception. Wearing rose-colored glasses when the world around me is in pain and just kind of cutting off or cutting out. They also can work the other way. Inventory, taking a sense of who we are and where we are without any sense of where we would like to go. Very often that can land us in a rut. And so there is this dynamic dance, this stability and strength and flexibility simultaneously between the inventory of who we are and what we can do with it. Now, where we might start in this process depends totally on what your default is. Can I get a show of hands if you're comfortable doing this? If you are more likely to engage thoughts of change, aspiration, moving into the future based on fear or fantasy, raise your hands. One, two, three. All right. Okay. More and more slow ones coming up. All right. What I would encourage you, take inventory. And I mean, literally take inventory, like even if you're not in recovery, do a fourth step. And if you don't know what that is, talk to me after the service. Do a fourth step. Take a sense of what you have and where you are. And so I'm assuming all the rest of you are um, stuck in ruts. <laughs> it's my assumption. If only a bunch of you can raise your hand for the first thing and there's only two questions here, the rest of you in the other one. You can rethink the first question after you leave here today. If we feel we're stuck in ruts and we have a good sense of kind of what we have, but we don't know where we want to go. I would encourage you, whether it's journaling, whether it's talking to a friend, give yourself some space to dream big. Give yourself some space to ask, what if, as if I could really move towards my dreams? Thoreau talked about building castles in the sky because that's where they belong. And then ultimately, efforts. And then the inventory, put the buttresses underneath them to hold those castles where they need to be. To maintain this creative tension, not a brittle tension, between who we are and where we wish to go. This is to gain tremendous flexibility of spirit. There's a woman named Christy Nelson who helps uh, people and institutions bring mindfulness and the sense of mindfulness to money. And if there is something, anything that 
causes most of us to head to places of fear or fantasy or holding on really tightly, it is money. It can make us very, very anxious. It can make us close down spiritually. Christy Nelson talks about maintaining that incredible healthy tension between the inventory of what we have and where we hope to see ourselves. And she gives an amazing example of this. And she does this without any sense of self-judgment, without any sense of shame. She is someone who for years has struggled with her weight. She says self-avowedly she struggles with her weight. And for years she kind of told herself a little white lie. She would say, um, some of you have heard this before, but I love this one. She said, I would always tell myself when I get on the scale, I didn't really like it. I'm big boned. I'm big boned. Until at one point in her life, she took um, um, one of those things like a full body x-ray, a, a bone scan. And she saw that her bones are just pretty much normal size. In that moment, she had an opportunity to perceive herself just as she was without any shame. And in that way, like Billy Bean was able to say, okay, now I know what I am working with. Now I can honestly pursue the direction of my dreams. This requires a kind of deep flexibility. I think of the eighth chapter or the eighth set of verses in the Tao Te Ching, the voice and the central text of Taoism, in which we are encouraged that it is best to be like water. Water, which the Tao says, benefits all things and is content to go to places that we might resist. Thinking of ourselves not something as solid and set, but rather as something that is fluid and able to move. Because with this sense of flexibility, we can have a sense of possibility, and possibility brings opportunity, and with that comes a true spirit of abundance. Not abundance, the power of positive thinking kind, not abundance of telling ourselves over and over and over again like mind control. We have enough, we are enough, we have enough, we are enough, we have enough, we are enough, we have enough, we are enough. Not like George Costanza's father in Seinfeld, if you remember that, yelling out serenity now, serenity now, serenity now, until he has stuffed down all the anger that makes him finally explode. That is not inventory, and that is not abundance. This is one of the ways that we affirm belief in the power of abundance here at Wellsprings. We talk about as one of our core beliefs that we believe that just as the caterpillar contains the seed, the, the butterfly yet to be, we have the potential for new life within each of us. For that to be true, for truly, literally, and also metaphorically for us who are not caterpillars or butterflies, there's only one way that comes about the butterfly as the tra- as is transforming into its na- new phase of growth cannot hate the fact that it once was a caterpillar. It does not kill the caterpillar. It integrates the caterpillar from what it was into what it is going to be. I read a great quote this morning from Carl Jung. It's already on my Facebook page. It says that many of the really deep Problems and most important problems in this life cannot be solved. They can't be solved, but they can be outgrown. That's what the caterpillar in the butterfly is saying. Don't reject ourselves. Don't refuse to take inventory. 
In fact, the signature villain of our time, and no, I'm not going to say any political figure. I'm really going to try and stay away in this political season from getting too involved in that. I'm going to talk about the central villain of our time, more famous than any particular politician, Lord Voldemort. Lord Voldemort, who is so obsessed with his own personal immortality that he hates his life and he hates other people's lives. And what I would say is that for the person who truly does loathe their lives, cannot name honestly, lovingly, openly their defects and their assets, cannot take inventory. The person who truly loathes themselves that even immortality will never be enough for that person because they refuse to integrate and to grow. True change comes from integrating what we have and who we are and then learning to move forward. That's why I love this movie and the story of Moneyball because they start out with a realistic and risky hope and then the results And as I think it was Mel Allen, the old great Yankees announcer, saying, you could look it up. You could look this up. The 2002 season, after all their stars had fled, the Oakland A's had an incredibly remarkable, miraculous season. They won 20 games in a row. The statistical odds of of that happening are less than 1%. They're like .001. They broke the American League record. I think the only reason they could get to that truly miraculous place and miraculous happening is that Billy Bean and the people who really fell in line with what they tried to do in that community, they really knew that change is not down the road. Sometimes we think when our lives change, then I will be happy when things change someday. I call this someday syndrome or elsewhere envy. (laughs) Someday when things change, when I am elsewhere in my life, then, only then, can I be happy. But change is not just the flower. Change is the seed itself. To not partake of those very unhappy practices of someday syndrome or elsewhere envy means to know that change is happening right now. Our great teacher, I'm going to leave you with this, our great teacher in the ways of natural spirits, Henry David Thoreau said, all change is a miracle to contemplate, but it is a miracle which is taking place at every instant. So today, let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. Today, may we have that capacity of hearts, mind, and spirits to open ourselves to the truth of our lives and see the change that is already taking place and have the flexibility to move towards that change in the hope and in the goal and in the aspiration, yes, of what we will become, but also in a deep way that honors who we are right now and all the amazing things, all the miraculous change that is occurring here in this moment, with me, with you, and with all of us. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Oh, beautiful, great, divine impermanence. The way of the way of ceaseless change, of evolution, and challenge, 
of breakdown and build up. May we allow ourselves to become as flexible and as nourishing as the capacity of water. May we find true abundance in our lives, not just from knowing what we have and not just of dreaming for the future. But may we know the abundance of flow. That flow that opens up the eternal now, the present that is always reinventing itself time after time after time. May we allow ourselves to enter the flow of change and development and growth. And may we, in our flexibility, truly be blessed beings. Amen.